You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. I had a blast last week. I've heard from so many of you. Uh, great, great response to the vision that we have. And if you weren't there, please take note of that. Check on our website, the front page of the website. You can get more information there and find more there as we continue this project. Uh, for those of you that are going to be going down to view the new building that we bought, it's really an old building, but it's new to us. Uh, it's right across the alley from the Riverview football stands, the, the, the bleacher seats that are there, right there. That would be the entrance you'd want to check out. And when you walk in there, and I encourage everybody to do it, I want you to imagine that place just packed with young people coming from all around our region that are just having a blowout worship time with God, praying for one another, getting impacted by the Holy Spirit, connecting with kids from other schools and from all over the region, supporting one another in, in, the, in, in what God is doing in their lives and through them to the schools and the families from which they come. I really need you to see that because right now when you walk in there, you're going to see uh, an old building that was basically a truck garage. It's going to be bricks and concrete and steel and wood. And you're going to think, wow. But I want you to see that God is in the redemption business. And that building is going to be redeemed and repurposed for the glory of God. It can have 250 seats in there. We can use it on, on Sunday mornings as a third venue. God forbid if something happens at the mills and that lease gets lost, like what happened here in Oakmont with our children's space this year, it's enough to house all the people that currently attend the mills. We could do that temporarily as a, as a safety net. We have so many wonderful plans for that. Special space for events, events for special, or a place for event, special events. Um, and also a part of this is helping to help this building that we have been delaying some renovations here for quite a while now. We, we plan to be able to help uh, update this space, make it a great place for our children who are now meeting here on Wednesday nights and make downstairs completely for children, add bathrooms upstairs for adults. I don't want to go into all the details, but I want you to see that it's not about bricks and mortar and steel and concrete. It is about the lives that are going to be changed and transformed in that place. And we are asking in these, this three-week time period, as I cast the vision for you, I'm asking you to be praying, what can you do to help us reach our goal of raising $1.5 million over the next three years toward this goal? So this week, I'm asking you to pray about what can you do? What can you do? And, and maybe you have stuff laying around your house that no longer is of use to you, but it has value. Maybe you can just get rid of some of that stuff and turn, turn useless things to you into something that can be used for eternal benefits. And sell it on Craigslist, have a yard sale, do whatever you can. Maybe if you have a windfall in income, maybe a raise, or maybe you're able to, to budget and live because now you have enough. You know you live within your means. And with the blessings that God gives you, you can make a real sacrificial love pledge and gift toward these, these projects that we have so that we can move into the future that we believe God has for us. Will you do that? Will you take time and pray about that? And uh, take note of this. If you have any questions, always feel free to email me, ask me, uh, whatever you can. I'll be glad to give you the answers that I want or that you need that I want. <laughs> 
Freudian slip there? No. I give you the answers you want to hear and, uh, and uh, information. We'll give it to you straight up, straight up. So, I think if we're going to do this, it's going to mean that everybody is willing to say, I, I don't want to just do what's left over. I don't want to just do what's easy. I want to do something that's heroic. And that's what I believe God is calling Riverside to do. Riverside, God wants Riverside to be a heroic church. Today, I want to tell you a story about an unlikely young woman who courageously stood up to face a terrible injustice in her day and was a hero. I mean, people who make great sacrifices, who take great risks, we call them heroes, do we not? I mean, we saw it just a couple weeks ago when the bombs went off at the marathon in Boston, and, and a, a horrendous event. And people were running from the bombs. There was a cadre of people who were waiting at the finish line to serve the runners who crossed. All these medical people, rather than running from the explosions, what did they do? They grabbed their gear and they ran to the explosions. And because they did that, they were able to provide emergency treatment, tourniquets, help, to people, more people would have died, many more people would have died had they not been heroic that day. Those are heroes. Those are heroes. What was the last time you did something heroic? You know, I remember when I was in third grade and Herbie Christman on the playground was picking on a little kid and we were playing kickball and I just was getting so mad because he was picking on his little kid and I went up to Herbie and I said, Herbie, you quit picking on him or I'm going to beat you up and he could have whooped me if he wanted to but he backed down and afterwards Martha Hogue came to me and she said, Billy, when you, that's how was Billy back then, she said, Billy, she said, you know, when you did that, that was so cool and I thought, yes. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want. I want to live to be heroic. I want to do something with my life that's going to help the weak, that's going to stand up for justice. I'm going to be the good guy and wear the white hat and do all those things. And so, you know, did I, did I, did I become a soldier? No, you know. Did I become a fireman? No. Did I become a policeman? Did I become an EMT, an ER doctor? No. I become a pastor thinking, Pastor, what's heroic about that? And I just thought, how can my life be heroic? Well, before you cast dispersions on me or yourself for not being heroic enough, I, I want you to differentiate between the front page heroes that we all can recognize and, and we read on the, in the newspapers, but I want you to see that there are opportunities to be heroic all around us, all the time, and in our midst today are everyday heroes. So tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament is this amazing Hollywood-esque story of honor and beauty, power and rivalry and betrayal and rescue. The story takes place 500 years before the time of Christ in the land of Persia. At this time in the history of the Jewish people, many of the people who had been carried away into captivity, if you know your Old Testament history, there was a 70-year time of captivity, and then they were re allowed to return, and in several waves, people returned back to 
restart and rebuild Israel. Well, there was a group of people who never returned. They stayed in Persia. And this story is really about those people who remained. And two of the people in particular who were very heroic to, to stand up in that Persian culture at the time. The book is the book of Esther. I'm not giving you a name. If you, if you, if you uh, want to turn in your Bibles, Esther, it's right smack dab in the middle of your Old Testament. If you get to Psalms and Proverbs, you've gone too far. Job, it's right before Job. So right after the first and second Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and all those. So after all the first and seconds, you come to that. So, so I want you to turn to Esther and we're going to just tell the story. But the big idea of this story is this. Whoever you are and wherever you are, however foreign your surroundings, your workplace, your school, your family, God has you there for a particular purpose, and that purpose is to faithfully and even heroically represent God in that environment. Wherever you are, God has you there to be heroic. So this story, I'm telling you, it is, it is written as if it is a short story, a novel, movies have been made about it. It is one of the greatest plot stories in the Old Testament. And you know, not one time is the name of God mentioned in this book of Esther. But you can see God all over it. And, and so what I want to say to you is sometimes you think that God isn't involved in your life because maybe you, the name of Jesus isn't used a lot. But I want you to know God is all over, all over your life and wants to use you in this situation. So here it is. I want you to pull up your chair, sit back and listen to a amazing, amazing story. And it begins in the time of the king called Xerxes. King Xerxes reigned. Um, the Persian king, after the Babylonian Empire fell, then the Persian Empire came to power, and King Xerxes was the king at that time. And, and as I understand, as I've done some research, the setting of this was probably at a time before Persia led some disastrous campaigns against Greece. And they lost, and who became the great Greek ruler emperor? Alexander. So it's like he's, 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 he's kind of heading toward this disastrous time, but he wanted to recruit uh, all, the, all the men, all the people of his empire to go into battle. So he decided to, to, to give them a great party. So it begins with a six-month celebration of their power, their fame, their wealth. And at the end of the six months, he decided to have a one-week total blowout party, stag party for all the men, because he's going to be recruiting them for war. And he says, we're going to have an open bar. You can come and do whatever you want for a week. And it's just us guys. And let's let the men be the men. And we're going to have whatever we want. So at the height of this party, King Xerxes, after seven days of unbridled consumption of alcohol, he calls for his wife, the beautiful Queen Vashti, come out and put on her crown and just strut her stuff for all the men to admire. Can you imagine? So Queen Vashti, instead of showing off her beauty, her beautiful body, she decided she was going to show off her self-respect. 
And so what she did, she refused to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunken men. Her personal dignity was such a threat to the king's honor because she refused to do that and to the honor of all the men who expected women to do what they are told. Uh, they said, we can't put up with this. Something has to be done. So the king went to his wise men and sought their counsel and said, what do we do with Queen Vashti? She's, she's embarrassed me. We can't have this. And notice, look in Esther chapter 1, verse 17. It says, their decision was, well, if all the other women in the kingdom hear of queens, Queen Vashti's conduct, then there will be no end to the disrespect and the discord given to men. I don't know about you guys, but that's awfully offensive. You know, it's like they're saying, we can't have that. How dare women refuse to be treated as sexual objects for men's desires? We can't have women thinking that they're equal to us. The whole fabric of society is going to be lost if we refuse, if women refuse to be subjugated. I mean, they're saying you need to make an example of her and you need to divorce Queen Vashti and banish her from your presence because we don't want our wives doing what she did to you. We don't want them doing that to us. So I've got to ask the question, why do you think the writer of this story included that information in the story? And I think that it is because the writer wanted the readers to understand the kind of environment that Jewish people, God-fearing people, people that wanted to live for God and live rightly for God, he wanted us to understand the kind of environment in which they were trying to be faithful to God. And so what was that environment? Well, what was the culture like that he describes? We see that he describes abuse of power, abuse of power and wealth. We see drunkenness and substance abuse. We see objectifying women and subjugating them to be kept inferior to men. Now, aren't you glad that we don't live in a culture like that? Said sarcastically. Let me ask this. Where are the children, the boys and girls in our community going to hear that there is a better way than that? Where are the children that are raised in our neighborhoods and come to our school? Because if you look on television, if you read the social media, if you look at everything that's around us, I don't believe the forces of evil, the powers that be in this world are any different now than they were in the Persian culture. And women are continually being objectified and young men are taught, uh, maybe not, not directly, but indirectly, that that's what women are supposed to be for. And that power and abuse, if you have it, you might as well use it and take power over other people. I, I mean, our, our, don't you see that young people in our culture need to be told that girls stand up for your dignity. Don't give in. Don't lose your self-respect. That boys need to be taught how to value women for who they are and not for what they can do for them. Where is that going to be imparted in our generation, if not the churches, if not Riverside and our community? Who will impart to young people that there's a better way than that, that that's not God's plan for children, that's not God's way for us? So, so the story happens and Queen Vashti gets divorced and we move to chapter 2 in the story and chapter 2 I call it the bachelor Persian style. <laughs> because when you're a king, you just can't go out clubbing and, uh, you know, walking around the marketplace to meet women. 
So they, they have a big contest, and he commissioned a producer to find all the beautiful women of the land and bring them to his palace for the contest. And at the end of the process, one of them would get the final rose and be crowned the queen. I mean, it's really, basically, the parallel is, is, is incredible in that story. So the talent search team went forth, and they found, among many other women, a young girl named Hadassah. But when she came to the king's palace, she changed her name to Esther because she needed to conceal her nationality. Because Hadassah was a Jewish name. Notice it says that this young woman who was known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So Hadassah goes into the palace. No, and she was chosen among many others, as I said. So although she was in the king's palace... Her guardian, her father figure, can't really tell according to language if it's her older cousin or if it's an uncle, but basically this is the man who, who, who was the father figure in her life who raised her. Now he's concerned because she's taken to do this and he wants to find out. So he comes close and he stands by the palace. He hangs out by the gate of the palace because he needs to keep touch with what's going on. And, and, you know, if there's any application I can get from this is parents, fathers, mothers, Stay accessible to your children even as you let them go. Even as you release them into the world, you need to be available to them. I'm not saying smother them, control them. I'm saying we raise our children to release them. But even as we release them, we are still the parent figure in their life and they need you to look out for them. So if you read there in the story, chapter 2, Mordecai, he's hanging out by the gate, and, um, and he's just kind of listening to the news of the day, hearing the people walk by, and he overhears two people, two men who conspire to overthrow King Xerxes. And I love, I love the, their names. They're, the names are the names of villains, Bigthana and Teresh. Those are the names of the two guys, Bigthana and Teresh. And he overhears that they're planning a plot. To, and so what does Mordecai do? Mordecai tells his, his daughter, Esther, hey, there's this plot. You better tell the king. Esther tells the king. The king finds out about it. The plot gets exposed. Those two guys get taken care of. The kingdom is safe now for another period of time. But that story gets recorded in the history books so that when King Xerxes is gone and he opens his presidential library, it'll be there for everybody to read. And, um, and so, but, but that's an interesting thing, because why is that recorded in the story? I want you to know, in a good story, all you English majors out there, a good story, no information is unimportant. And this is a little important piece of information that we'll come back to in just a bit. So anyhow, the third chapter, we see how old wounds resurface. Um, in scene three, a new villain enters the story, the, his name is Haman. And, and in telling this story, Max Lucado calls Haman a raging bigot, arrogant, with an ego the size of Persia. Uh, this guy, I, I don't know who would play that character. That would be a good contest. If you, if you could think of a great person to play the character of Haman in this story, I want you to email me this week and let me know who you think would be a great guy. But this guy, Haman, great villain in the story. He comes up. And he, for some reason, whatever reason, he's the second in command. 
he's, he's right there next to the king, and he's the guy that carries out all the king's orders and serves the king and has all the political clout in, uh, in, in the empire. Um, and and whenever, whenever Haman would go around the, the capital city, everybody would bow down to him. Everybody would honor him, and he loved it. I mean, the guy had an ego the size of Persia, as he says. So, so when people were bowing down, everybody except one person... And that person was Mordecai, Esther's surrogate father, her, her, her guardian. And, and Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. And notice, why wouldn't he bow down to Haman? Well, one, one explanation is that, well, Jews, because they believed in one God and they would only worship and bow down to one God, they wouldn't bow down to other gods, they wouldn't bow down to other people who were putting themselves up as gods. But there's another hint in the scripture as to why Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. Haman is called Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, well, that means a lot to you, doesn't it? Nor um, me. But then as I do a little bit of research, I realize that an Agagite, he was, he was the son or a descendant of King Agag. Who was King Agag? Well, if you know your story, you go back and read a little cha- few chapters earlier in the history of Israel, and you see that King Agag was the king who was king when Saul became king. And Saul was supposed to battle against King Agai and completely wipe them out, but Saul didn't do what God had told him. And so as a result, this Haman is a descendant of King Agag, but he was, he was a Amalekite. Well, what's an Amalekite? You gotta go back even further to the story of the Exodus when the Israel was coming out of Egypt it was the Amalekites that tried to wipe them out. It was the Amalekites that, defe- that battled them. In the story when Moses was praying and Aaron and Hur were holding up his arms and Joshua was fighting, it was the Amalekites that ambushed Israel. So I just want you to know that the, the love between the Amalekites or the hatred between the Amalekites and, and the Jews goes way back. These people just don't like each other. And so... When Mordecai the Jew doesn't bow down to Haman the Amalekite, it's, it's a story that goes way back. Those are old wounds that get resurfaced. And as a result, Haman said, I need to get rid of these Jews. A bunch of them went back to Israel, good riddance, but the ones that remain here, we just need to wipe them out. And you think, well, how could anybody do that? Genocide isn't something that is just ancient history, folks. We've, we've seen times of genocide in our own lifetime. Cambodia, Germany, and, and Rwanda, and the Balkans, and even in parts of the world still today. One group of people decide that there's another group of people that we have to hate because everybody has to have somebody to hate because if you can look down on somebody else, you can feel better about yourself. And I want you to ask the question, where will people in our culture hear that that is wrong? Where are young men and women, where are students that are growing up going to hear that the racism that they are being told by their families is not right? Where are people going to hear that animosity toward a certain group of people is wrong and they need to step up and be like Christ in our generation? Where will they decide that loving our neighbors is Jesus' command? And that includes the Samaritans too, those others that are out there. Where are they going to learn that people are all equal in God? 
God's eyes if we don't have a place for them to hear it? How are they going to know that this is wrong? And how are adults going to be told that their racism that runs so deep that they can't even say is a part of them is still there and they need to know how to, how to be godly in our generation? We have responsibility to be heroic now in our day, in our age, for the next generation and for our own selves. So anyhow, let's move on to the story. Haman goes to the king and he basically says, you know, these Jews, they're just a bunch of troublemakers. And he wants the king to use the Jews as scapegoats for all the king's problems. Again, that's been repeated over and over in history. And so he said, King, you know, I need to, we need to pick a day where we can get rid of these Jews. And notice what it says in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Haman then spoke with King Xerxes, and he said, There's an odd set of people scattered throughout the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from those of everybody else. Worse, they disregard the king's laws. They're an affront. The king shouldn't put up with them. And if it pleases the king, let orders be given that they'll be destroyed. And I'll pay for it myself. I'll deposit 365 tons of silver in the royal bank to finance the operation. So the king said, great. I need some extra cash to fund this war. We don't need these people who aren't going to eat our diet and live up to our customs. Sure. So they cast lots. They cast the purr. And they decided that this certain day, and according to the Jewish history, It was March 7th, 473 B.C., where they declared open game on every Jew. This day, everybody can pick up their arms and their weapons, and it doesn't matter how many clips they have in it. They can go out and take care of all the Jews and get rid of this problem, whether it's their neighbor, whether it's the people that live on the other side of the tracks, wherever it's those foreigners who we don't like. Let's just declare open season on all Jews. And that's what they did. And an edict went out, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. And the verse says, king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. They were bewildered. How on earth can we have powerful people that would do something like this and tell us to do that? I mean, bewilderment is that emotion that you get when you just, it doesn't make sense of such an atrocity. Bewilderment is, is the emotion that Denise, our children's ministry director, and Donnie, our student ministry pastor, that's the emotion that they get when, when they hear and see some of the situations that the students and children who come to our ministries, to our church, with some of the things that they face in their home life and at school. Bewilderment is the feeling that comes over when you hear the cry of a kid who's been abused or neglected. Bewilderment is, the, is that feeling that smacks you in the face when, when parents expose children to things that a child should never be able to, should be exposed to and their innocence is lost. 
bewilderment swells inside of you when you see an awkward kid that's just getting bullied by everybody else in school. And I want you to know, adults my age, younger us who grew up before the digital age, aren't you glad that you're not growing up in the digital age right now where bullying can happen, not just on the kickball field and the playground, but it can happen anytime and any moment on social media. Kids can be slandered. A picture can be passed around. Kids can be put down. Aren't you glad you didn't live in a time like that? And aren't you concerned about the children that are raised? And do we not have a responsibility to teach them? Them that there's a better way, that they don't have to be beat up and beat down and defeated by all of that stuff. We have a responsibility to be heroic for our children, for our students, and for ourselves in our time. Bewilderment explains the feeling that I get when, when I hear adults spewing out hatred towards certain groups of people. When I sit with a wife who tells me how she's been abused, when I hear the story of a father who's lost his income and, and some injustice on the job and he's out, uh, those, that bewilderment, we're all familiar with that sense that all oh, is it right and it doesn't make sense. But there comes a time when bewilderment must turn into action. And so the story goes on, and chapter 4 is sort of the apex of this story. Well, at least it sets up the great final scene. So the Jews of Persia, they know that here, here's the day, it's open season on us. On this day, we are going to be targets for all the other people. We don't know who's going to pick up whatever weapon and bludgeon us or kill us or get rid of us. So they're just terrified. Mordecai, he's weeping and fasting because he hears the edict, reads the story. Esther sees him weeping. Apparently, she didn't read the paper. She didn't hear the news. And I don't know. Was it because women in those days, as in many parts of the world today, women are not given an education because we can't let them get educated enough? Because if we keep them uneducated, if we don't allow them to have freedoms, then we can keep them in, under our thumb, uh, like in many parts of the world today? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying is that perhaps, I don't know, but... Queen didn't know that this came out, this edict happened. She's the queen. She's in a life of luxury. So she sees her, her dad, her father figure, her guardian, Mordecai, this man that raised her, loves her, and sees her destroyed. So what's going on? And so, so Mordecai tells Queen Esther what the king had decided. But what can she do? She's just a beauty queen, <laughs> literally a beauty queen who became queen. And uh, how can she do anything? And so this verse, Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, if you, have a, if you have a paper Bible, if you have a digital Bible, highlight it, underline it, this is the key verse here. Mordecai says to Esther, okay, Esther, you don't think that you are important in this story? Well, I want you to know, Esther, don't think that just because you live in the king's house that you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, Help and deliverance will come, will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. But you and your family will be wiped out. And who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. I love that line. Mordecai is asking Esther to take a huge risk. Talk about a father who's prepared his child, a parent who's prepared their child to step up 
at the right moment and do something heroic. Talk about being able to release your children, to be able to go into this world and say, I'm going to do something with my life that's going to make a difference for others more than just find the, you know, as parents, we want our kids to get the great job, to have life in comfort. We tell them, you know, go out and just go get the biggest paycheck you can get. Go out and just do something simple. And, 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 and I think God's saying, where are the heroes? Where are the people that are going to step up and do something big? What are the challenges that you're preparing your kids how are we preparing our students to live for something bigger than themselves except exposing them to a bigger world, taking them on mission trips and letting them see what it's like in a developing country, helping them to see that the whole world isn't like the community that they've lived in and to get exposed to people that are unlike them so they can understand that people are human and equal, whether they have a lot or whether they have a little and all are beautiful in God's eyes. And how can we help them to understand that they need to have great dreams to expand the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom that are we giving them, are we giving them the sense that somehow, some way, perhaps their number will be called to step up and be heroic? That's what I believe God wants churches to be. Equipping and empowering people, not just children, but adults, to be heroic in the workplace, in the neighborhood, wherever you may be, to do something great for the Lord. And I'm always asking, God, what are you asking Riverside to do? It's heroic. How can we be a church family that's willing to step up for such a time as this? I, I look at moments in the history of this church where people took great steps of faith. And I look at the last time we did a capital campaign. Last time was eight years ago. Uh, and, and I know churches that are in perpetual capital campaigns. And I despise them as much as you do. I do. Not that I don't despise the reason for them, but I hated talking about finances. But this isn't about just finances. But eight years ago, people were heroic. And we went on an expedition. We raised funds. And we didn't even know where the land was or what we were going to do. And when we went on that expedition, raising funds for a big question mark, we raised three quarters of a million dollars. And where do we end up? We end it up at the mills. And because of that, we have a site in a mall and it's a multi-site situation, and we've grown, and people have come from that side of the river to that place, and people from this side have gone over there. People made huge investments, going and volunteering every week, setting up, tearing down. You know the story. And because of their hero heroism, we have that situation. But are people there and are people here willing to be heroic today for somebody else? Are we willing to step up for somebody else and do something heroic so that kids that aren't and people that aren't in a church today can hear the gospel it's time now for us to create space for a greater expansion for those who've yet to find jesus the unchurched the students and children both here in oakmont and at the mills and wherever god may lead us so let's move, get back to this story this gets even greater so esther has been challenged to do something to step up to save her people and so she takes the risk, and it is risky because she has to ask for an audience with the king. Even though she was the queen, she still had to ask an audience for the king. And, and if you did, and it, you know, he could say no. He could say, what is it you want? And if he doesn't like it, he could cut your head off. I mean, he was the king. He could do whatever. 
So she asks for, you know, to enter into his inner court. And he says, okay, you can come with me, come in. So what she does, she gets a hearing and she says, I would like to have dinner for you and your right-hand man, Haman. Can, can we come to my apartment tonight and I'll have the servants make a great meal. I just want to have that and then I'll tell you what I want. So they do. They have a great time. They enjoy it. It's her and King and Haman and they have a great meal. And uh, the king says, what do you want? She says, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's come back tomorrow night and then I'll tell you what we want, what I would like for you. The queen says, they all had a great time. Yeah, this sounds good. Let's do it again tomorrow. And then the next night Esther would ask the king what she wants. Well, that night, first of all, when Haman walks out of that first dinner, that first evening, he's on cloud nine. I mean, he just, as he goes, wow, I have a private dinner party with the king and the queen. How cool is that? And when he walks out on cloud nine, he walks out the gates of the palace, and there's Mordecai. And he doesn't bow down. And it's almost like that bubble burst for his ego. He goes home and he says to his wife, I'm going to get that guy. Forget waiting for the day that we have free. I'm going to build a gallows. I'm going to build, one version says it was a 75-foot pole. And I'm going to impale him on that pole. So he does. He has this gallows build. He gets the big, you know, engineers out. And in a day, they build these big gallows or whatever, however long it takes. And, And so the next day, he goes back to the next evening, the dinner. And we see this twist of fate happen here. Haman's going in. He's having this gallows built for Mordecai. He's coming in and he's going to tell the king, you know, king, you know, I want you to uh, take, take care of Mordecai. What he didn't know is that very night prior to that, the king, maybe he ate too much for dinner. Maybe he has some indigestion. The roll aids weren't available. And so he's awake, he's awake at night and, He's, he needs to read something boring to put him to sleep. So he says, I want you to bring out the history books. I want to read something. So he pulls it out and he reads the story about this plot where Big Thana and Teresh were thwarted. And he says, who's the person that exposed that plot? Oh, Mordecai, that Jew. So he says, we need to honor Mordecai. He's saying it in his head. So the next night when Haman comes back and he's building a gallows for Mordecai and wanting to get the king to give him permission to kill Mordecai, before he can tell the king what he wants to do to Mordecai, the king says to Haman, he says, Haman, what should we do for the person that honors the king? What should we do for that person that the king really wants to thank and really wants to esteem? And, the, and Haman, his head is just getting bigger and bigger because he's thinking that the king is talking about him. So Haman says, I think the one you need to honor, we should put your robe on him, put a, we should put him on your horse and parade him through the city and let everybody just throw confetti and roses and say, what a great guy that honors the king. And the king says, Haman, that's a great idea. I'll tell you what, I want you to do that for Mordecai. I love it. I mean, that is the coolest story. So the next day, Haman, fuming, takes Mordecai, puts him on, prays him through, and, and he, is, he is just mortified that he had to do that. Well, notice Esther chapter 6, verse 13. 
Mordecai goes back home after that day and he's totally humiliated, tells his wife what happened, and his wife says to him, you know what? If this Mordecai is in fact a Jew, your bad luck has only begun. You don't stand a chance against him. You're as good as ruined. And while they were still talking, the king's servants, king's eunuchs arrived, and they hurried Haman off to the dinner that night, the second dinner that Esther had prepared for them. So Haman and the king come to dine with the queen, and the king asks Esther again, Esther, you know, honey, what is it? Tell me what it is you really want. So finally, the queen says, you know, somebody wants to destroy me and all my people. Somebody has a plan to kill all my people. It was as if she was coming out with the king and telling him that she was, that she was Jewish. And the king says, who would do such a thing as that? And I can just imagine the soundtrack on the movie, you know, the, the just kind of coming to a crescendo. And, and, uh, and, and the queen points her beautiful little finger and says, it's that wicked, vile Haman that wants to do this. And the king, he's incensed. He gets up and he walks out of the room. Haman knows his goose is cooked and he falls on Esther, begging and pleading her to have mercy on him. And the king walks in with, with Haman on top of Esther and he assumes the worst. And you can imagine what happened after that. Haman ends up being hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And the Jews were given permission to defend themselves on that day. And the people were spared. I love that story. I love that story. So let me just wrap it up. Who in our day and age is the snake like Haman? Maybe a better question would be, what is the snake? And I want to say that the powers that be that controlled Haman are the same powers that be in our culture that want to steal, kill, and destroy the work of God. They are still the powers that want to pull kids out. Billions of dollars every year is spent pulling children and students and young adults away from God, away from the church. The powers that be are still existing in our culture that are telling us that, that being a person who is willing to stand up and be different, that voice should be eliminated, that should be snuffed out, because we can't have that in our culture today. Cyberbullying, ridiculing, anything that's religious, dysfunctional homes and families, a sense in futility and our trusted authorities in education and government and the church, that is the culture in which we live today. And not only that, we come across small, little injustices every day in the workplace, in school, in our homes and neighborhoods, and sometimes even big ones. The snake is still out there, still wanting. The Haman still exists, and Haman really is a story for us to get the bigger picture. So the question is, will you do something heroic for such a time as this? 
Will you be willing to set aside your own personal pleasures and say, I'm going to sacrifice something big to be able to help this church be around, not just for today, but for tomorrow and next year and the next decades to come. I want to be a people that's willing to say, I want to invest in eternal values and stand up against injustice. Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now we as a community, as a family of faith, we can be heroic, and that's the goal for this new space that we have. That's not, that's, it's going to be a place for kids right now. They've outgrown their current space. Kids are coming from all around the region because we have such a fantastic student ministries place. This building here in Oakmont needs to be upgraded and need to be a better place so adults aren't walking through children's space downstairs so they can have their great environment on a Wednesday night. The children can bring their friends and their friends will bring their parents and their families to a place where they're going to hear that this world can be better. There's a better way and it's the Jesus way. We need to be the people to tell them that. We need to be heroic about this. But you know what? You don't have to come to church to be a hero. You can be heroic wherever you are. God has placed you wherever you are to be a hero. I, I, I see it all the time. I see some of you, many of you are just doing it. And you're not on the front page, but you're doing it time after time. I see parents who, who are adopting difficult children. Special needs children. I see people that are providing foster care for kids who are coming from horrendous situations. I see students who are standing up against the bullies and reaching out to the outcasts in their school. They're saying, I'm not going to do what you're doing. We can be better than that. And I see young leaders from the schools that are in our student ministries who are stepping up and they're saying, we don't have to give in to this kind of thing. I see teachers who are, who are caring for kids in schools. And, you know, I always got to refer to that because I, I see my wife, who in my eyes is one of those everyday heroes because she tells me the stories of some of the kids that come into her classroom. And many of you teachers know what I'm talking about, who come from families. and They don't have a book to read at home. They don't have a crayon to draw with. They don't have a person who can tell them that they can be better and they need somebody in their world to love on them and to parent them and to tell them that life can be better. And many of you teachers are doing that every day and you don't know the influence, but you're a hero. I see people, nurses, doctors, personal caregivers, anybody in any job, whether it be a building contractor or whether it be a person that's doing social work, you can be heroic wherever you are if you give what you give in the name of the Lord and do it with the right attitude and the right motives. So we don't have to just go across the world to rescue people. We can be rescuing it even where we are. It won't make the press. It won't make the, it won't make the front news. But you can change a life. You can be a hero for one person. Sending a kid to camp, paying their way because they don't have parents to come to the church and they don't have the money to go. You can be a hero for that kid because that can change the course of that kid's life if God gets a hold of them. Folks, I believe, I believe, even if I'm just a lowly pastor, we can be heroic. I want to be heroic. 
you want to be heroic. Can you believe that God can use you to be heroic? Can you help us as a community to do something heroic for the next generation, for the next people that haven't found God or a place where they can be welcomed and worship in a way that's comfortable to them? Can we do that? I believe we can, but I believe everybody's going to have to do their part. To, to reach this goal of $1.5 million, I've never asked for that before. But I believe it's worth it. Teresa and I are making a huge sacrifice to do this, and I'm asking you to pray, what can you do? What can you do? What kind of investment can you make? On average, $35 a week is really what we would need. Some can do a whole lot better than that, and some can't do that. I'm not asking for everybody to do the same amount. I'm asking for everybody to make equal sacrifices. Can you do something to make that happen? For three years. For three years. And it'll make eternal dividends. It'll pay eternal dividends. Would you pray about that this week? If you were like us and you have some money and savings that's getting no interest these days, the more you can do up front in this pledge, the better off it is. Do something big if you can. Let's invest in things that are going to have eternal dividends. Let's pray together. Lord, help us, I pray. Help us to be people that still want to be heroic. Always when we were kids, we wanted to become heroes. Help us to see that we still can be. God, help us to surrender ourselves and our personal agendas and our own pride and racism and injustice and our willingness to just capitulate to the powers that be to fit in. Help us to be people that are willing to step up and stand out and do it the Jesus way. God, we need you. Holy Spirit, help us, I pray, to be that, that voice in our communities. Speak out for the, for the voiceless. Speak up for God. And do it in a way that's edifying and comforting and encouraging for others. That you would be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.